everybody, welcome to another episode of the Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. This month, I have the unbelievable pleasure of talking to John Patrick Shanley. Like many theater artists, I first came to know his work when I read Danny and the Deep Blue Sea. During this episode, he talks about how that play really set him on a new trajectory in his career that led him into film, winning an Oscar for the screenplay to Moonstruck, which actually means I first knew of his work when I was a teenager watching Moonstruck, or the film Joe vs. the Volcano. His most famous play, Doubt, won a Tony and a Pulitzer, and went on to be produced as a film he directed featuring Meryl Streep, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, and Viola Davis, all of whom were nominated for Academy Awards along with his screenplay. Spoiler alert, we didn't actually talk about Doubt during our conversation, but suffice to say, John Patrick Shanley is one of the great American writers and a pretty funny, wise, and kind person to talk to. I hope you enjoy this conversation recorded over Zoom in November of 2021. So I look at the skyline of New York. Yeah, not a bad view. And the East River. And uh, I've been here for like 10 years. It's good. But you grew, you grew up in Brooklyn, didn't you? I grew up in the Bronx. Oh, that's, that must, it must be insulting to say that then. <laughs> I mean, you know, my... No, it's not. <laughs> Brooklyn is a wonderful borough. I happen to come from the Bronx, which is, in a way, just less well-known, uh, which I like. Sure. It's uh, it's home of the New York Yankees. That's not why I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. I'm a, uh, I'm a lifelong Red Sox fan. Okay. I like, you know, <laughs> I like the Yankees, but that's not what it is about the Bronx. The Bronx is... The only part of New York that's part of the mainland United States. The rest is separated from the country by uh, uh, water, a strip of water like the Sprite and Dival, or a more serious piece of water like the uh, uh, Atlantic Ocean, uh, East River, West River, uh, Hudson River. Um, but it's also just, it's, uh, it's a tumultuous, truly it's a container full of like a lot of real New York things. Like when I did my first film, Five Corners, we, we read a bunch of people uh, who weren't actors. And uh, you could always tell when somebody's from the Bronx. If, you, if somebody was from Brooklyn and they said something and made you laugh, they did it more. Mm-hmm. Uh, if uh, somebody from Queens, if they did something and you were charmed in some way, they like tried to hustle you in some way. Uh, and in the Bronx, if they said something that made you laugh, they looked at you and said, what are you laughing about? It's <laughs> a whole different thing going on. <laughs> did you have a sense of, uh, of that when you, were, when you were growing up? No. Like the I Bronx's was, identity? I de very much felt the Bronx's identity. I thought that that was my identity, but I didn't know about this way, the attitude that we had. I didn't know because I, I was in it. And it wasn't until I got outside of it for a while uh, that I started to be amused by it and also treasure it. Um, you know, like when I first moved to Manhattan, uh, I used to, people say, well, how do you like Manhattan? I said, I don't like it. It's very uncivilized. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, people say stuff that they said it to you in the Bronx. You just punch them in the face. And here, you're not allowed to punch them in the face. It's like a really weird place. <laughs> <laughs> so so what was what was uh, childhood like for you in the Bronx? Was there, was there a lot of uh, face punching? Yes, there was a lot of face punching. It was a very violent neighborhood in the old school way. It was fist, fist fights, a lot of fist fighting. 
Uh, you know, there was some knives, but it was mostly just fist fighting. And uh, it was constant. And it started when I was like six years old. Uh, and uh, I didn't start almost any of the fights, but I was in fights all the time. And I found it tiresome. Uh, so I did not glory in them. I did not particularly like them. I wished that they would stop, but it was part of the culture. But in every other way, it was extremely stable. Uh, my home was very stable. My parents were very dependable. I was the youngest of five children. My neighborhood, I saw the same like 50 to 75 people every day for like 15 years. Uh, and uh, it was like living inside of a clock. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I, I'm, very, I'm very grateful looking back on having had that period because it was going to destabilize pretty much right as I was leaving. Every place I was when I left destabilized. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that. <laughs> it, but I always identify with those movies about being on an island with dinosaurs or a giant gorilla or whatever. And at the end of the movie, you escape by like just a minute, then the island sinks right behind you. And I had that happen repeated first with my uh, old neighborhood. And uh, then I went in the Marine Corps. And when I got out, I just never saw any of those people again. It was like they disappeared beneath the waves. Uh, and then uh, I was in a school in New Hampshire for two years, went out of business right after I left. Uh, and it just sort of seemed to go that, you know, even like when I, I finally did an interview with uh, Andy Warhol's magazine interview, last issue, he died right after that. <laughs> it's just, it seemed like, you know, I did a play at the public theater, first play I did there, Joe Papp died right after that. It was, it was definitely, it was a thing. <laughs> I guess you could look at it like you've got great timing. <laughs> Which is a real feeling of, you know, grab whatever you want because tomorrow this isn't going to be here. So, so in those years when you were growing up in the Bronx, what, you know, in the, in all that fighting and whatnot, what was it that you were, like uh, dreaming about, if you were dreaming about anything, when you got older? Well, I was uh, always a writer. I was, I was writing certainly by the time I was 10. Uh, and uh, I was very involved with, in terms of, I was also, I was a tremendous reader. Everybody in my family was a big reader, except my father, uh, who only read the Daily News. And somehow it seemed to be smarter than all of us. Uh, but uh, we all read a great deal and books were always floating around the house. And back then, I think, you know, one of the biggest things I like to read was science fiction, which is a great thing to read because, you know, you start uh, science fiction, you don't expect to understand what's going on uh, immediately. You know, very often starts, you know, it's a, Zygmatka's just landed on B's Foz for the third time and the Transformers that he was depending on aren't there, you know? So you go like, okay, I don't know who these people are. I don't know where we are, but I'm in outer space and I like it here. Uh, and uh, I think, I was just thinking the other day that I think that one of the reasons that particularly boys gravitate or gravitated towards science fiction was it's escaped from the mother. It's escaped from earth. It's the furthest you can go from your mother uh, uh, is outer space. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that that probably is a, a general truth that boys must escape their mothers as part of the maturation process. Uh, and uh, also very much true in my house that I needed to escape my mother. Did you end up writing sci-fi at all? I don't think I ever did. I mean, I might have, no, I'm not sure that I ever wrote it. Like when I was first starting out, there might've been a couple of like Edgar Allan Poe kind of things where 
uh, I dreamt I stabbed somebody and woke up with a bloody knife under my pillow, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, But I don't think I ever took on the genre. I'm only hesitating because I wrote a lot of movies that weren't made in addition to the ones that were. I don't think any of them were sci-fi. Um, it's something I would do. I mean, that's it's an interesting terrain from my point of view. And I'm, I still would like to. I mean, to me, one of the most attractive titles I've ever come up with is Escape from the Planet Earth. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't at this point want to escape from planet Earth? Yeah, I feel like last time I heard a title like that, the Earth was covered in apes. So it was Escape from the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, before the apes, people, men have been there. Yeah. That's what we found out at the end of that first one. And I read Planet of the Apes when it was a science fiction novel before it was ever, years before it was ever made into a film. Um, you just you read all that stuff. It was great, you know, because it's like the gymnasium of the imagination. What were you motivated to write in, you know, in those early years? Uh, what motivated me to write? Or, or what, what were you motivated I, to write if, it, if you were reading? Like, like I said, I, when I started, I wrote a lot of poetry uh, and I wrote, uh, you know, we had this thing, the uh, the grammar school art form called composition, which you had to write a composition. And it'd be like, write a description of the amusement park, you know, and use the following, try to use the following words in it. Uh, and I, I was the king of the composition. I, I did very well with that form, uh, which is a sort of essay without a point. Uh, it, it's, it's a truly plotless exercise. Uh, which is very freeing in a way. Uh, and uh, so that was, you know, in terms of institutions, that was the first kind of thing I wrote. But I was writing poetry. And when I was, by the time I was about 14, 13, about 13, I was writing uh, kind of declarations of who I was uh, that were rather grandiose and, and also uh, pointed out that they, that they were grandiose and that that was part of who I was uh, and who uh, I would become. Because, I mean, grandiosity is sort of an attempt to be, to reach beyond yourself, to reach something that you can't yet attain. Uh, and so it's it's an aspiration. Uh, and uh, many of the best people at one point or another in their youth have been grandiose, some carried over into adulthood where it seems more ungainly. Uh, but um, I think it's a, a necessary step. It was a necessary step for me, certainly. Uh, and then I, you know, was also... Right. I was influenced by many different kinds of poetry. I could really channel uh, the tone of somebody like Charles Dickens or uh, some Japanese poetry, uh, hakus and things like that. I wasn't a big hakuist, uh, but I, I was very uh, taken with the spareness and the beauty uh, and the minutiae of Japanese poetry and Chinese poetry. Uh, and I read a lot of poetry. Um, and probably the biggest influence at that time when I was a kid was uh, Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Uh, because I had the aspiration to become, I sort of had a picture in my head. There was a novel that then became a film uh, called Zorba the Greek, which I had read. And uh, something about that made me aspire to be a guy who would ultimately walk into the surf, reach in, grab a living fish and bite it, bite a piece out of it and glory in, in the taste of it, you know? Uh, and uh, that's an image that still stays with me though God knows I've never seen anybody actually do that. Uh, but it, it 
you know, I wanted to be a certain kind of hedonist uh, where I robustly enjoyed life. How close do you think you've gotten to that so far? I did pretty good, you know. I mean, no, hedonism becomes less important uh, once, you know, you go, you finally uh, finish with puberty, which happens, as far as I can make out, at about 63. Uh, <laughs> and I I wish I was joking. Uh, uh, the insanities of puberty continue so far after people think they do. It's like a joke. But I don't think that anybody, I think that the idea of adulthood is an artificial construct and that we never have time to become this thing that we call adults. We die of old age before it happens most of the time. Or maybe we have a couple of years of it. Uh, it's uh, a volatile thing to be alive, an unstable thing. And um, if you're going to be truthful about what your experience of life is, you're going to, I mean, most of the time, what you're just looking at are traumatized children uh, because they've gone through so much that they have either shut down or repressed things in a way that have caused them to become twisted or they just, they can't acknowledge vast territories within themselves because it's, it's too great a task or it's too painful. Or it's too exciting. You'd never, you'd never be able to sleep properly. How have you dealt with that in your life? Uh, I, I think, you know, and you're a writer, so you know this. Writers uh, always keep a major boring thing going with the material world. They get into routines, uh, schedules things like that. I mean, I don't have a formal schedule. I, I did years ago. Uh, but um, it's great, for instance, to know uh, exactly what you're going to eat for the next three days because it frees up that part of your brain that you're using for something else. This world is an intrusion uh, and an awkward, bumptious thing. Uh, and the world of the imagination uh, has much more latitude uh, and uh, you can get a lot more accomplished there. Uh, and you can bring back the things that you discover or construct in the world of the imagination and you can realize them in this world to a greater or lesser extent, which is what you know, playwrights and screenwriters do. Uh, you know, we come up with this stuff and we spend part of the year uh, writing these things. And then we go out and we try to realize them on the physical plane uh, and to, to uh, greater or lesser success. And uh, when it, depending on what kind of metronome you have, you know, for I, I need a certain amount of time, which is very quiet and very stable. And then I need to go out and mix it up with the population. And I need to try to do these, yes, grandiose things. Uh, I mean, any movie, making a movie is a grandiose thing. And certainly plays are even worse. I mean, it's just, it's a free-for-all. Uh, and, uh, and also you spent all this time in this uh, rippleless calm of a certain kind. Uh, and then you go out and you're dealing with all of these people who are fucking crazy. Uh, and you're trying to get them all going in the same direction and get something done from the other world. So it's a, a necessary, it's very necessary. Nothing would ever change if people didn't do this. Uh, they would degenerate, yes, but they would never change you would never see new buildings go up, new boats designed, uh, new buildings uh, built. You wouldn't see um, new philosophies or uh, uh, schools of painting right? unless people were doing this first, this thing that they do in private and then take into the public realm. Um, religions, 
even. But that, you know, that's maybe different territory. So when you were young and, and you were writing these grandiose statements and poetry and, and whatnot, did you have your sights set on being a filmmaker or being a, a, a playwright? No, no. I, first of all, I never met anybody in the arts uh, at all until I was like 22. Uh, and uh, I didn't have any understanding of like uh, theater. No, I never went to the theater. I did see two plays in Cardinal Spelman High School uh, and they blew me away. And I did um, build scenery for those plays. And that turned out to have lifelong influence on me. Um, and so that was, that was a, a wonderful thing. But I had no sense of future. And I still have virtually no sense of future uh, at all. So what was the, what did you, what did you think the Marines would, would be for you? Well, yeah, I mean, I was, uh, uh, I, uh, when I was 19, I, well, I dropped out of NYU. Uh, I was there for one year. Uh, and uh, actually I dropped out when I was 18. I went when I was 17. And uh, uh, I was 1A. I was going to be drafted into the army and the Vietnam War was going. Because um, in, you know, 1968, I was 18 years old. I mean, that was exactly when not to be 18 years old. Uh, and, uh, so I dropped out and I, you know, I had a job, a couple of shit jobs and stuff. And I, uh, but I knew I was going to be drafted. And then I heard that the Marines had a two year enlistment open because they were running out of people. Uh, and usually it was, you know, four years. My brother, Tom had been a Marine teacher that I admired had been a Marine. And I basically just said, I am, which is what I'd heard. I hear the army's boring. Is the Marines boring? And they said, they would laugh sort of uneasily and say, no, no. And I said, okay, then I'm going to join the Marine Corps. So I joined the Marine Corps. Uh, but, you know, I'm a very intuitive person. And with, at that point, not a lot of consciousness at all. So I just had instincts and followed them. And so I went in the Marine Corps and it turned out to be, and I, and I was you know, against the war. I said, well, I'll go in the Marines and if they try to send me to Vietnam, I'll, I'll say no and go to jail. But if they don't ask me to go, if it never comes up, why well, push it? Uh, and they never did. And so uh, halfway through my enlistment, I was no longer eligible to go to Vietnam. You had to have 13 months left. So... When I got to the 12th month, I didn't have enough time left. About that time, I got orders to go to driving school. And uh, I went up to battalion headquarters and I said, I won't do I have a conscientious objection to driving school. They're killers, they're polluters, I won't drive. Uh, and the, the colonel that I said this to was so <laughs> amazed that he just granted it to me. I just said, what the fuck are you doing in the Marine Corps? <laughs> and uh, I didn't learn to drive then until I was 40. I had been in my, the woman who took care of me was killed. She was hit by a car uh, uh, when I was five on Christmas Eve. And so I did have, I didn't like cars. Uh, and uh, I only learned to drive myself when I adopted children and I, there was just no way that I was going to be able to do certain things with them unless I drove. So when you objected to this, it wasn't you being a rebellious asshole. You were just, you, you really didn't want to. Well, I mean, in other words, I, I wasn't being a rebellious asshole because in fact, what I would, what had happened was it preyed on my mind. I was like, well, I know I said that I would refuse uh, lawful orders in the Marine Corps uh, if they try to send me to Vietnam. But now it didn't come up, so now I'll never know. 
And I'm like, I have to know. And so about that time, I got orders for driving school. I'm like, well, this will have to do. Mm-hmm. And, and off I went. So, I, you know, I fully expected to go to jail. They put you in jail in the Marines for that. That's not something you get to do. You don't turn down orders. It's not a la carte. So um, I was stunned when he just said, okay, you know, like the world has gone to hell and you're part of it. Um, but it was great. So I got out of the Marine Corps and I had gotten this discipline, a lot of discipline that I hadn't had before. And I used it to create a writing schedule because I'd been writing and reading a great deal while I was in the Marine Corps. And I got up every morning at five o'clock and wrote for three hours after I got out. And I wrote a book for a year, and but I forgot to put in a plot, probably because of that composition thing. And uh, so I burned it. And then uh, I started writing uh, short story. I started writing articles for magazines and then I, uh, a magazine said, you know, that they were, oh no, I, I started writing poetry and I was sending it out to poetry magazines. And then I got a thing that they wanted to publish two of my poems. Uh, and uh, so they published two of my poems. And so then I started writing short stories and sending them out. And the Paris Review said, not this story, but maybe the next one. I stopped writing short stories immediately. Uh, and then I ended up going back to NYU and then I took a playwriting course. And as soon as I started writing a play, I said, this is what I do. Uh, and I've been doing it ever since. So what was it? What was it about? the? Pl- well, actually, I want to go back. Why did that very positive rejection for the Paris Review prompt you to stop with the short stories? Well, actually, the uh, poetry acceptance also got me to stop submitting poetry. Because it wasn't, you know, I thought I was very intuitive and very unconscious. So I just, my appetite changed and I started doing this other thing. You knew it wasn't you. So you were like, forget it. I didn't even know that, you know. I think, you know, Carl Jung said somewhere that that everybody is like, there's sort of four main attributes uh, of the individual personality and they are, uh, feeling, uh, uh, sensation, uh, intuition, uh, and uh, I forget what anyway, I, I, and, and, and thinking. And thinking is analytical, uh, and feeling is emotion, uh, and intuitive is intuitive. And I was a feeling intuitive. I didn't really have any thinking going on. I read and read and read and read, uh, and it was all going in, but I don't. I didn't know where it was going, uh, and but I had intuitions. But I didn't have intuitions the way a lot of people think of them, where I'm like, I think I'm going. I just did things, uh, and I didn't even. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been capable of saying, I have an intuition that this is what I I should do. It was more rudimentary than that. I would just do it. I went up to uh, a place where they were signing people up for the Marines. I walked in and said, I want to enlist. I didn't even thought. I got up that morning. I had, you know, I just did it. And then I came back. I told my parents after I'd done it and uh, people in my neighborhood. And that was it. And then I was gone three weeks later. Uh, and it changed my life and it changed my life for the better. It got me out of the Bronx at the moment that I needed to get out. Okay. So I'm going to go back to the playwriting now. So you took that playwriting class and then something, you felt something. Well, yeah. You know, actually before that I went into, I used to go to obviously in the bookstores all the time and I was in a bookstore in the Bronx and uh, I picked up a copy of Dialogues of Plato. Uh, and I went and I sat on a park bench and I opened it up and I started to read it. And I remember a feeling of recognition. I thought, this is what I've been looking for. And for a long time, I thought that it was the clarity of the discussion going on, the attempts at clarity. 
But in fact, it was, it was dialogue. That's what it was. Because later on, first time I started writing dialogue, I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. Uh, and then I meet, and then I knew my life's work. Uh, how many people are that fortunate? Um, I immediately started reading the entire canon of American playwriting. I read everything, everything that had ever been produced on Broadway. Then I started with Off Broadway. Then I started with Europe, uh, and uh, uh, I knew, I knew, and never stop. And then I, like within. Three weeks of, you know, I took this playwriting course and the final project was to write a one-act play. I wrote a full-length play, went into production three weeks later. Uh, and uh, I haven't stopped doing plays since that time. Did that, did that first production like, lead, like uh, open up doors for you? Or like, how did, how did it all start for you? Well, I guess it all depends on what you mean by all. In other words, it started for me maybe when I saw dialogues of Plato and recognized something that, that I had been looking for something. You know, there are people who the first time when they're a toddler that they see a piano, they recognize it. It was like that for me with dialogue. Uh, and so that meant that it didn't matter whether I was successful or not. It didn't matter whether or not people liked what I did. This is what I, I this is who I was and who I am. And I was gonna do it. I was gonna do it. Uh, and so I did, you know, my first play and they were, it was, and it was at NYU, it was 300 seat house. And it was a terrible production, you know. Uh, but also the play was probably kind of rudimentary. It did have a plot, which is more than many plays have. Uh, and, uh, and it had some humor that was palatable. Uh, but all of that was really kind of not the point. The point was I was doing it. And, uh, then, I, and then I was going to keep doing it. And so I did that. And, I, you know, and there was recognition that I had some kind of talent in this area. There was a recognition before that, that I had talent as a writer uh, from teachers and stuff, you know? But then when I did this, there was some other kind of recognition. They, I got a couple of, you know, financial awards, little awards at NYU. Uh, and uh, I remember Jimmy Breslin came to my, that first play and he said, you could do this. Uh, and another guy who was like, uh, wrote for the Village Voice, he was like, this is your first play? This, you know, you, you're, you've mastered some things that some people never master. And so, you know, I heard those things and uh, I took them, I wouldn't say with a grain of salt, I just knew I was gonna do this. And then I went, you know, and so then I, I wrote a couple of few plays and we put them on, you know, and I was getting a pretty good reaction. You know, I was doing one acts and directing them, still at NYU. Uh, and then I went to, I read, you know, all the theater reviews in the newspaper, uh, uh, but I didn't actually go to the theater. Uh, and then I went to a play that had been well-reviewed, a sort of working class play. New York family kind of play and called the ballroom in St. Patrick's Cathedral. And it had a professional production and then it had gotten a very solid review from the New York Times. So I went and uh, um, I was watching the play and I thought I can do better than this. And unbeknownst to me, it was winter time and unbeknownst to me, I had an intermission at intermission, I, I walked out of the theater, got a breath of fresh, and it had snowed. And the world was different. And I knew it. I was like, a door closed behind me. I'm like, oh, I can really, if that's what they're calling 
good. I can do better than that. I know I can do better than that. And so that was really a watershed moment for me. And then I got, you know, very quickly, first professional production, uh, Vinette Carroll is a big deal, black producer, director. Uh, she did Arms Too Short to Box with God and Don't Bother Me, I Can't Go. But she was, she was a force. She had a little theater called the Urban Arts Theater. And I had written a play about being in the Marine Corps called Saturday Night at the War. Uh, and they had a grant from the Ford Foundation to do new plays. And they chose my play. And, we did, and it was a wonderful production. And uh, no, no one critic came and gave it a good review, but it was like in a, a publication called Wisdom's Child, right? So, and I didn't realize that that was gonna be my last good production and maybe my last really good play for 10 years. Uh, and then maybe I needed to go out and beat the bushes more to get people to go to it. Um, but I, it didn't really matter, you know? The thing was going to unfold the way it did. So for the next 10 years, I wrote plays and we put them on and uh, I got a production about once every year somewhere, a little theater. There was a lot of little theaters then. I made an average of 75 to $100 a year doing plays. Uh, and I had, you know, a bunch of shit jobs, painting people's apartments and I was a moving man and handyman, stuff like that. Uh, and I was and I was doing play after play after play, and I would do genre after genre. I did one play; it was a horror play called Hoodoo, with you know blood and mysticism and everything else, you know. And I did one reading of it; the reading went very well. I just went on to the next play. I didn't even send it to anybody. Uh, uh, I did a, a, a couple, a couple, at least a couple of full length plays like that, where I would do one reading. Reading would go well, and I would just go on to the next one. One of them was, uh, a, a, I did a verse play about George and the Dragon, full length, got produced, uh, and uh, uh, badly directed. Um, but um, just another step, all part of the series of experiences I needed to have. Um, and I did, you know, comedies and dramas that made O'Neill look like a comedian. Uh, uh, yeah, just anything in every genre. And I'm still doing that to this day. You know, my new play is uh, uh, magic realism uh, with a uh, decided Puerto Rican bent. Um, and why? Because that's the next thing that I got interested in doing. Uh, it's, uh, I've done, uh, plays that, um, uh, where people represented countries, allegory, an allegorical play, which was very well received actually by Israel and the Palestinians called Dirty, Dirty Story. But I can't do, you know, like I had this breakthrough with Danny and the Deep Blue Sea that made a, a, a splash in New York, but I made five thousand dollars from that play, and that was it. Um, so, in that no time reason. period, like leading up to Danny and the Deep Blue Sea, where you're writing these plays, and and you mm -hmm. said you said before that uh, I can't remember how you characterized it. Like they weren't good, or they weren't getting done, or a lot of attention. I'm I'm wondering how you like. Did you feel like you were doing good work? And yeah, it didn't seem to be about good and bad. Uh, it did seem to be about, let me try this. Let me do this. This is what I want to do. And I would do it, you know. And of course, I'd have hopes that, you know, yeah. I'm going to be declared a genius and a millionaire in the same moment. Uh, but I wasn't, for the most part, horribly disappointed. I did, I had three productions. Um, no, I had two productions of new things in New York uh, within 30 days of each other. And both of them were slammed with three very completely negative reviews in all the major dailies. 
so I got slammed tw twice within 30 days by three publications. And um, that's kind of when I knew that I was going to break through. I knew I'm, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to wear them out. You know, I, uh, one of the things was, a, it was a play called Welcome to the Moon. It's a bunch of one act plays. We did it on Ensemble Studio Theater. Uh, and uh, I was walking with a friend of mine at night. The paper came out at night, the Times. And I picked it up. I read the review. He was in the play. I wrote it. And it was a 100% negative review. And it was by a new critic who just started with the Times named Frank Rich. <laughs> and I read it and I said, well, I was here when he got here and I'll be here when he's gone. And I threw it in the garbage. And um, many years later, uh, Frank Rich started giving me good reviews uh, right towards the end of his time at the Times. And... Um, then later, I, I, I met the guy. He was sort of a nice guy. Uh, and uh, I was, but the thing that I like about that is I was there when he got there and I was there when he was gone. And now, you know, it's true. Every time they get a new critic, I look at the guy, I look at his, the name of the man or the woman, you know, and I go like, well, here's another one. <laughs> You guys come and go, but I'm hanging around. <laughs> uh, can you talk about what it was, uh, you know, what was it about Danny and the Deep Blue Sea that was that was different? Like, why was that play the one? I gave up. I gave up. I was trying to prove, I wouldn't have put it this way. I didn't know that this was what I was doing, but I was trying to show how smart I was. And nobody gives a fuck. Uh, and finally, I wrote a one-act play called Welcome to the Moon. And, man, things in my life at that time were really bad. Uh, and I was in, deeply impoverished. I was in an unhappy marriage. And uh, things were not going well. And I sat down and I wrote this play. And I just said, well, I'm just going to tell the truth. And uh, then I did a reading of of the play and I could see something happening in the audience that hadn't been happening. They were responding to this thing in a whole different way. And I remember so vividly my reaction, which was I had a bittersweet feeling of disappointment. I was like, oh, that's what they want, the truth. And I had come to undervalue the truth. I thought it was the least interesting thing. Uh, and whatever truth means, you know, but whatever I meant by it. Uh, and uh, I started to walk down that road, which very quickly led to Danny and the Deep Blue Sea. Uh, I said, I'm, I'm going I'm to write about, I wrote a, a play, a very silly play called Gorilla which had 10 apes in it uh, about a misanthropic zookeeper in Central Park who frees the apes in the ape house on New Year's Eve because he hates people. And that and the male and female gorilla, they haven't been able to mate, which is very common actually, uh, and in captivity. And he decides to be uh, Sereno to facilitate their courtship. He got kicked in the head when he went in the cage and he can understand what they're saying. Uh, and it, it was beyond, it was fun, it was fucking fun. We did a production up in Vermont of it. Uh, and the auditions for it were the single funniest thing that have ever happened in my life. Uh, but uh, we did it and people said to me afterwards, this one thing they said, you know, that character, the male gorilla, who was like so unable to express himself, that was really moving character. And I thought, oh. And I wrote Danny and the Deep Blue Sea. Mm -hmm. I dropped all the way down 
to the earth and wrote Danny. And um, I went to the National Playwrights Conference with the O'Neill with it. And you have to read your own play to the other playwrights and directors. You know, this is about, I don't know, 25 people. And when I read it, you're in like a sort of little schoolroom, and I was sitting up at the teacher's desk and then all the other playwrights, including like August Wilson and Lee Blessing, very good people uh, sitting there. And about two minutes into the play, Danny flips out. And when I got to that part, the entire front row picked up their chairs and moved them back five feet because of what was coming out of me. Uh, and I declared with that play, this is who I am. Uh, and I'd been in hiding all those years. I'd been in hiding. And I'm like, I'm not in hiding anymore. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. And I was embraced. So I was very fortunate. How did it change your career after that? Like, did you start to write in a different way? Uh, I, I never went back. I never went back. Uh, you know, I wrote Danny and the Deep Blue Sea. Then I wrote Savage and Limbo. I wrote The Dreamer Examines His Pillow. Uh, uh, I wrote Women of Manhattan, which is a kind of weird play in terms of these other ones. So I, then I went back to something more central and visceral with Italian-American reconciliation. Uh, and uh, But Danny, the thing that Danny did uh, was um, a guy in Los Angeles saw some actors out there do a scene from it and said, Who's, who wrote that? Uh, and got my name and he was a movie director, Tony Bill. Uh, he'd done a movie called My Body Guard. Uh, and uh, he contacted me and he said, you know, I'm coming to New York and uh, uh, I'd love to have a drink with you, see what you're doing. I said, okay. He came to New York and uh, he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm writing my first screenplay. I'll be finished probably in about a week. He said, oh, I'd love to read it. I sent it to him and he read it and he said, yeah, I'd like to option it. And for not that much money, but, you know. And I, this literally is the money that I used to pay the rent, buy groceries. I put down to nothing. Uh, and uh, then he, he called me up a little while later and he sounded really strange. And he said, you can't, uh, you, you, you can't think this is normal. This is not the way these things happen. But I gave the script to uh, George Harrison's company and they just said they want to fund it. They want to make it. And I said, great. He said, no, you don't understand. This is not, this never happens. Did you and get I'm what like, he was, did you get what he was saying at the time? Yeah, but in other words, it was still like, you know, what Jimmy Breslin had said. It was like, all I knew was, yeah, I, I know other people have other experiences. And I know whatever experiences I have are going to be unique. That's just life. That's the way life is. If things are going well, okay, let's go. I'm not going to be spending any time on, wow, I'm going to be like, okay, let's go. Uh, and I, uh, by the time you said, I was writing Moonstruck already. Uh, and uh, when Five Corners ultimately got, you know, they couldn't cast the villain in Five Corners. They wanted all these different, Nick Cage said he'd do it under a pseudonym if he could put Alka-Seltzer in his mouth. Um, so that didn't work for people. But um, all along, I wanted John Turturro from Danny and the Deep Blue Sea. And they, uh, they kept, you know, going after whatever villain they could find that had a name. So finally, um, the guy who was the head of handmade films, a guy named Dennis O'Brien, uh, who was George Harrison's partner, uh, he saw a production of Danny and the Deep Blue Sea in Los Angeles. And he called me up. He said, I just have to tell you, I saw this production of this play, and it was just extraordinary. It moved me so much. And I said, the guy who originated that role is the guy that I want for the villain 
in five corners. That's who should be playing this part. And he said, okay. He didn't see John DeTron. He saw some other guy. And Tony Bill didn't see Danny and Deep Blue Sea. He saw some kids in an acting class do a scene. So it was, you know, it's all kind of uh, oblique. Uh, but whatever, whatever works, you know, whatever. And when things are going, let them go, man. So did you start to write that first screenplay because you had aspirations that it might lead to money? Yeah, I, wrote my, I got a National Endowment for the Arts grant for $17,000, I think it's either 15 or 17. And I knew that I could live on that for a year. But I knew at the end of that year, if I didn't do something to change my situation, I would be back painting people's apartments. And so I immediately set about, I also wrote, you know, I wrote probably at least two plays that year. I remember, I remember writing Dreamer. Um, and I uh, started reading screenplays like one after the other very quickly. And I watched movies like James Bond movie. And I said, how would you write this? Just this sort of nomenclature of it, you know? Uh, and um, then I read a screenplay called Scarface by Oliver Stone. And I thought at first that it was written very purple prose. And then I thought, you wouldn't feel that if you were watching it. It's a different form. Imagine you're watching this and that something clicked. Uh, and then I started work. Uh, and I thought I'd write about my old neighborhood because that's what I knew best. And I just collected images in my head from my childhood, things that I'd seen that I found striking and that were photographable and I did the story second. First, I did the images. And um, ended up, you know, and it got, it ended up getting made. And when they wrapped shooting on Five Corners, one week later, Moonstruck started shooting. So, who who read Moonstruck? Did you get somebody to read Moonstruck because of Five Corners? No, uh, actually, uh, uh, when I when I uh, wrote Moonstruck, first people I gave it to was. Gave it was the, the director of Five Corners. I felt I owed him, uh, and uh, he didn't. He didn't answer. <laughs> uh, and then he, the producer, who had been a complete flaming asshole, uh, he was in New York and asked me to dinner. And at dinner, he said, "Oh, by the way, I read that script you sent us. Uh, it's not a movie." And I said, "Okay." And my reaction was, now I'm free to do what I want. Uh, and my agent had a very good relationship with Norman Jewison because she had uh, handled John Peelmeyer, who wrote Agnes of God. Uh, and I think she, I think she even did another. She, I think she did two films with Norman. Uh, and so uh, she said she suggested Norman. I said, yeah, send it to Norman. And she sent it to Norman. And I met Larry Kasdan in LA. I said, I'm sending it to Larry Kasdan. Uh, and um, Norman, uh, first Norman's partner called and said, how dare you send me something so completely uncinematic. And then Norman called and said, ignore what he said. I want to option it immediately. Uh, and then Larry Kasdan called and said, I want it. And then my agent said, Norman got it. Then Larry called Norman and said, will you step aside and let me direct it? And Norman said, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and that cinched the deal, you know, then Norman wasn't going to let it go for the love of money. Um, yeah. And then I wrote uh, uh, January Man, sent it to Norman. He wanted to do it, but he didn't want to direct it. And that ended up being... The Writers Guild struck. Uh, I wasn't. I was banned from the set by my union, and that didn't go well at all. But I'd also then written Joe versus the Volcano, and I handed that to my agent. I said, you know, I think Steven Spielberg would like this, and she sent it to Spielberg. And Spielberg called up and said, 
I think uh, I've just read this. I think it's terrific. I understand you want to direct it. I think that's a great idea. And I was like, uh, yeah, I never said that. I didn't even, I was like, <laughs> and that's how I became a movie director. That's, that's bananas. Yeah. I, I, it's yeah. Like, like the nerve, the nerve of you to think that you could step in and just direct a movie. I had been a handyman. And the way that I've been a handyman, I know how to do anything. Whatever anybody said is like, could you fix, you know, the leaky faucet? I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. What's the problem? I had no idea. And then I would like go down to the hardware store and say, how the fuck do you fix leaky faucet? I did the same thing with directing a movie. Yeah, without, without Google and YouTube tutorial videos to teach you how. It's... I, I've never <laughs> seen one of those to this day. And, you know, look, if you write, if you really write a movie, you have directed it. And there's truth in that. There's a lot of truth in that. Uh, uh, You'd been directing and, you know, plays anyway. Yeah, directing plays. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, how much have you used your imagination? That's the key to directing a film. Uh, do you, you know, have you imagined it in advance? And now you are finding a way to reproduce what you imagined. And if you vividly imagined it, then you know what you're after. There's great people to get you whatever the hell it is that you want to get. Uh, you don't have to worry about that part. How is not what you have to worry about. What you have to worry, the big thing, you go to LA, is people know how to do everything except one thing. And that is, they don't know what the movie is. They need something to work on. They could do everything else. When moons, when moonstruck, when the moonstruck moment happened, and you won the Oscar, did that feel like? Did you feel like my life has changed, or were you like that, on to the next thing already? Well, no. When I won the Oscar, uh, uh, they announced my name. I realized that I had thought I was going to lose. I was shocked. And then as I walked up to the stage, I started to like understand what was going on. And then I got up on stage and Audrey Hepburn kissed me and Gregory Peck gave me a bear hug. And I turned around and I looked at the audience, all the movie stars that I ever, you know, seen and whatever. And I, a voice came into my head, a voice that comes very rarely to me. And it said, let this in. Let this good thing in. Because almost without exception, I have to be ready for attack. And this was a moment where I remembered to put down my sword and shield and say, thank you. This is wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and that I did not have to be defended at all. I was safe for one long moment in an otherwise embattled life, because that's what it is to be an artist or to be alive, I think. To have a safe moment, you know, people want to have safe lives. You're lucky if you have a really, like really good, really safe moment. That's not to be expected. That's a wonderful boon. So the next day was back to business as usual, you know, but for that, time you know i did enjoy and i've always when i've watched the oscars since and i see sometimes somebody win and i'm like oh he couldn't let it in that's too bad he's gonna feel bad about that for he that that was his moment to let it in um and i understand i understand it's like you know when the guy says i this never happens and we got the money for the that doesn't mean you got the money for the film you don't know that they got the money for the film. If you read those contracts, it's always like nothing happens until the day of principal photography, period. The rest of it is just humbug. Uh, whatever is promised to you as of principal photography, that's, that's what you want because that's when you're going to get the movie made and when you're going to make a living and all of that stuff. Um, and, you know, I mean, I've done plays where, you know, people say, my God, that I, the times 
uh, uh, reviewers walking out raving about your play. And then I got like a 100% horrible review for the play. You can't believe anything anybody says about any of it. You just got to do your work. You were ta you mentioned uh, early on in our conversation about hedonism and enjoying life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked you about that in the context of your earlier life, but I, I want to ask again about later in life. Do you, do you enjoy, do you enjoy life? I enjoy life. I enjoy, uh, I enjoy writing. I enjoy thinking about writing. Um, I've found a new, another, yet another way to write that involves a lot of thinking and, without writing and then writing. Uh, and I never had the time to do that. And so that's nice. Uh, and um, I enjoy that the bastards can't get at me as easily as they used to. Um, and I, you know, I enjoy being alive. I'm very lucky I'm not in pain. I feel good. I can pay my bills. Uh, I have good friends. I have two sons that I'm very proud of. And it's now, it's like, and I'm thoughtful, you know, that thing that I didn't have. I wasn't born a thinking person, but I have become a thinking person uh, because life demanded it of me. And that's what Jung said. He said, we're usually born with two of the four aspects kind of developed and two are in a nation state. And it's the work of your life to develop the other two sides, whatever they are, uh, until you're a fully rounded person. Uh, and that has been the work of my life. And, and, and uh, pain is the thing that makes you develop the sides that you haven't developed. Um, and so I've experienced a great deal of pain, but I'm also uh, very clever at um, making things comfortable for myself. Uh, I've spent a lot of my life scheming. How do I do this? and have a good time? How do I do this and do good work and enjoy my life? And I, you know, I have no perfect formula, but I'm doing all right. Are you well-rounded now? I think most of my life, I had the fantasy of meeting a wise old man who would tell me everything. And I more recently have come to think, oh, I think I've been looking for myself not yet but one day maybe for a couple of days before i croak being that guy that i was always looking for to John Patrick Shanley for spending some time with me. I wish you all could see the beautiful sun setting through the windows behind him as we spoke. It was, it was beautiful. What you can see if you're in the New York area is his newest play, Candlelight, directed by Lori Key and produced by Nylon Fusion at the New Ohio Theater November 27 through December 19, 2021. Go to nylonfusion.org for tickets and info. Music in this episode is from one of my oldest friends, Daryl Panza. The theme song is from International Pen Pal. Thank you to Rob Weiner-Kent and American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. This episode was produced and edited by me, KJ Jarbo, as our associate producer. If you're still listening, go ahead and rate and review the subjects on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done that already, and follow us on all the socials if you want. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month are the plays written by Dominic Orlando, who passed away a few days ago. Our paths cross only a few times, um, and I didn't know Dominic well. But reading what people have been saying about him over the past few days makes it clear he was a beloved person and playwright. If you have access, go to New Play Exchange and 
read some of his work. I know that's what I'll be doing. <laughs>